Hello everyone. In today's Politicast, we are going to be looking at interest groups. So when the framers of the U.S. Constitution uh, were building all this, they were very fearful of the power that could be used by organized interests or organized groups of people. Uh, but they did believe that interest groups do thrive and prosper because of liberty, you know, the freedom that all Americans have to organize and express their views. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, these organized groups were called associations at the time. And the two different groups that had differing views of the Constitution itself, the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, they themselves were organized groups of political elites that had different views about how to create this new democracy. And both groups agreed that if the government were given the power to regulate or in any way try and forbid efforts by organized interests to participate in the political process, it would then have the power to suppress individual liberty. And James Madison, he argued in the Federalist Paper number 10 that a good government encourages, you know, multitudes of interests so that no single interest or what he called a faction would ever dominate the others. And so the basic assumption is that all these competing interests are going to regulate each other, producing balance. And so today we call that principle pluralism. And pluralism is a theory of democracy that's based on balancing interests in society through groups that compete for different policy outcomes in the government. So while an interest group may lose on one issue, they may win on the next. You know, overall, the vast majority of society will be represented in government. And according to pluralist theory, all interests are and should be free to compete for influence in government and politics. And pluralism was long the dominant view of the political system in America, but critics point out that not all interests are equally represented in the competition for that political influence. And some interests tend to speak with very loud voices like affluent or very wealthy corporations, while others can barely make themselves heard like Midwestern farmers. And pluralism does not guarantee political equality. You know, there's a lot of research that indicates that through group politics, economic elites have a lot more influence on these mass-based forces in our American political processes. And so this version of pluralism is called elitist theory or elite pluralism, and that tends to more accurately describe American politics. And an interest group itself is an organized group of people that lobbies government to change public policy. And so this is going to include like membership organizations, businesses, corporations, universities, labor unions, other institutions that maybe restrict membership to specific occupational groups or other categories of people. And so individuals, they tend to form groups that so they can increase the chance that their views are going to be heard and their interests treated favorably by the government. And interest groups sometimes get negatively referred to as lobbies, special interests, or pressure groups. Or they may be positively discussed as like advocacy organizations or citizen groups. 
Uh, sometimes they get confused with political action committees or PACs, which are groups that raise and distribute money for use in election campaigns. And a lot of interest groups do create PACs in their name to be the money-giving arm of that interest group. And one final distinction is that interest groups are also different from political parties because they tend to focus on the policies of government while parties tend to concern themselves with the personnel, like the actual people of government. Now, parties organize to win elected office and interest groups do not. Interest groups are increasingly engaged in political campaigns and they want to help candidates that are favorable to their policy, policy goals to help them win election. And so the number of interest groups we have in the U.S. is enormous. Millions of Americans are members of one or more interest groups, or at least to the extent of like paying dues, attending some meeting, following a group on social media, reading the news, being on an email list, etc. And so by representing the interests of such large groups of people and encouraging political participation, organized groups can and do enhance American democracy. And organized groups, uh, they educate their members on policy issues and mobilize their members for elections and grassroots lobbying efforts using sophisticated social media campaigns, email lists, letters and news reports, media campaigns, and even more. And groups will lobby members of Congress and the executive branch, uh, they help engage in litigation, like in the court system. They'll represent their members' interests in the political arena. In interest groups, they also will monitor government programs to make certain that these programs don't adversely affect their members. And so in all of these ways, organized interest groups help promote democratic politics. And because not all interests are represented equally in society, interest group politics works to the advantage of some and the disadvantage of others. You know, homeless people are generally not organized. You know, while National Realtors Association spends more than most organized lobbyists in Washington, D.C. And not all organized interests are successful. So these organized interest groups in the U.S. are predominantly economic groups. Groups working on behalf of businesses and industry, they far outweigh the citizen groups in terms of their number of registered lobbyists in Washington. And in the state capitals, uh, they tend to have more financial resources as well for elections and uh, their influence to government. So the ability of economic groups to mobilize the resources for elections tends to result in more legislative victories when the lawmakers win office and support policies that benefit their industry. So some examples are like the oil and gas industries, telecommunication firms, pharmaceutical companies, etc. So some common types of groups. Now interest groups, they tend to come in many shapes and sizes, you know, as the various interests that they represent. Most obvious are groups with a direct economic interest in government policy. Businesses and corporations make up over a third of the groups with lobbying offices in Washington, with trade associations making up another 23%. Labor unions are just 2% of the groups that are registered to lobby. Now, trade associations are generally supported by groups of producers or manufacturers in some specific economic sector. Trade associations care about broad industry-wide issues, and they lobby and make financial contributions to gain access to elected officials. And now, in addition to these more broadly representative groups, specific companies may be active in Washington on certain issues that are a specific concern to them. 
So combined, over six in ten groups lobbying in Washington represent business corporations or trade associations. Now, labor organizations, they're also very active in lobbying government, like the the AFL-CIO, which is the American Federation of Labor Congress of Industrial Organizations. They merged quite a long time ago, a few decades, several decades ago. There's also uh, the Teamsters Union, the United Mine Workers. They all lobby on behalf of organized labor. So labor unions, they represent all sectors of the American workforce, but according to one study, labor unions represent just 2% of the total number of interest groups that are registered to lobby. And so despite being out lobbied, labor unions continue to exercise influence on Washington and union members vote. Organized labor can have a significant impact upon elections, but few members of Congress can ignore their power at the polls. Now, professional lobbies such as the American Bar Association, the American Medical Association, they have been very successful at furthering their members' interests in state and federal legislatures. So trial lawyers are represented by the American Association for Justice, accountants, real estate agents, uh, teachers, dentists, even college faculty have professional associations. And professional associations, they make up just over 10% of the total number of groups lobbying in Washington. Financial institutions that get represented by organizations like the American Bankers Association, National Savings and Loan League, they're often less visible than other lobbies, but they do play an important role in helping shape legislative policy. In recent years, I've witnessed the growth of a very powerful public interest lobby, you know, purporting to represent the general good rather than its own economic interests. So these public interest groups or citizen groups, they have been most visible in the consumer protection environmental policy areas, although public interest groups cover a wide, broad range of issues. And citizens groups are just over 20% of the groups uh, with the lobbying offices in Washington. But there was a survey done of 315 lobbyists and government officials. There was about 98 randomly selected policy issues that found citizen groups were more likely to be mentioned as being influential in the debate than any other type of group. And some of these groups are like the National Resources Defense Council, the Sierra Club, the National Civic League. These are all examples. And claims to represent only the public interest should be viewed with caution. So it is not uncommon to find some decidedly private interests seeking to hide behind the term public interest. For example, uh, there's a very benign sounding partnership to protect consumer credit. It's a coalition of credit card companies fighting for less federal regulation of credit abuses. And Project Protect is a coalition of logging interests promoting increased timber cutting. So economic interests often mask their financial interests by organizing public interest groups. And closely related to and overlapping with public interest groups are ideological groups that are organized in support of a specific political or philosophical perspective, like the Christian Coalition and National Right to Life. They promote conservative values and social goals like opposing abortion. There's also a perceived need for representation on Capitol Hill that's generated a public sector lobby in the past several years, like the National League of Cities, National Conference of State Legislatures, and the Research Lobby. And now this latter group uh, makes up think tanks and universities that have an interest in obtaining government funds for research and support. It's going to include institutions like Harvard University, Brookings Institution, 
the American Enterprise Institute. And so all of these groups make up about 10% of the total number of groups lobbying in Washington. And so it's very difficult to categorize unrepresented interests precisely because they're not organized and they're not able to demonstrate to the government their identity and their demands. And so we call these like potential interest groups. So there was a political scientist, David Truman, he referred, that's kind of where the term comes from. And he undoubtedly was correct that in any time, as long as there's freedom, it's possible that any interest shared by a lot of people can develop through voluntary association into a genuine, genuine interest group that can demand usually successfully. But the fact remains that many widely shared interests are not represented by organized groups. And so two such potential groups are the homeless and the poor. And so both groups have shared interests and policy outcomes like job programs and affordable housing, but the groups lack organization through which to push for government policy to address their concerns. Now, despite the benefits of interest groups in terms of mobilizing and educating the public and the arguments in favor of pluralism, there are concerns about the influence of special interests in the U.S., and critics contend that pressure politics or interest group politics is heavily skewed in favor of corporate business and upper class groups, leaving those with the lower socioeconomic status less able to participate in and influence politics. So economic and upper class groups are strongly in favor of reducing corporate taxes and funded election campaigns of Republican lawmakers that have shared their interest in major tax reform. And people with higher incomes, more education and management or professional occupations, they're more, much more likely to become members of groups than are those who occupy the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. Well-educated upper-income business and professional people are more likely to have the time, money, and skills needed to play a role in a group or association or contribute financially to an organized interest. And moreover, for business and professional people, group membership may provide personal contacts, access to information that can help advance their careers, travel perks, discounted insurance, and many other financial business benefits. Sorry. And so at the same time, corporate entities like businesses usually have ample resources to form or participate in groups that want to advance their interests. So the result is that interest group politics in the U.S. tends to have a pronounced upper class bias. And many interest groups and political associations have a working or lower class membership, like labor organizations or welfare rights organizations. But the vast majority of interest groups and their members are drawn from the middle and upper middle classes. And even when interest groups take opposing positions on issues and policies, the conflicting positions they take on, or they uh, take on policy issues usually reflect divisions among upper income strata rather than conflicts between upper and lower classes. And there's a lot of policy issues critical to working middle-class people like quality public education, efficient transportation, affordable housing, safe neighborhoods. They often get ignored by the government. And when the political system is run by interest groups, democracy will be unequal and many interests and issues important to average Americans get ignored. But interest groups are not enough. You know, citizens from the bottom ranks of the socioeconomic ladder must be organized on the massive scale associated with political parties. And competitive political parties provide alternate choices so the public can participate in the government's decision-making process. Interest groups tend to benefit 
from a more limited scope. And when political parties compete with one another to win elections, they have incentives to continually expand political discussion to non-voting members of the electorate to gain a majority of voters. And political parties must also act responsibly by informing the public of salient issues on the public interest, not narrow economic interests. So by representing broad public interests, competitive parties could create more equal representation in American politics. So although interest groups are many and varied, most share key Certain key organizational components like leadership, money, and agency or office and members. So leadership and decision-making structure are critical for a group's organization. Now, for some groups, this structure is very simple. For others, it can be quite elaborate and involve hundreds of local chapters that are melded into a national apparatus. Political entrepreneurs initially organize interest groups with a strong commitment to a particular set of goals. Such entrepreneurs see the formation of a group as a means both for achieving those goals and for enhancing their own influence in the political process. And just as true in the business world, successful groups often become bureaucratized with a paid professional staff that replaces the initial entrepreneurial leadership. And today, every group needs a social media strategy. Both progressive and conservative online advocacy groups often have a streamlined staff structure with very little bureaucracy. And an example is Wikipedia. Their content is provided by volunteers from all around the world. But the real impact of the digital media revolution is the advent of new forms of organization. Leadership remains a priority for online organizations. Entrepreneurship and leadership are important for all interest groups, but especially so for those with little staff and formal organization as the leader holds that organization together. And the second key organizational component of interest groups is a financial structure capable of sustaining the organization and funding the group's activities. Because the cost of maintaining groups with a significant online presence is lower than for traditional lobbying groups, more and varied types of organized interests have been able to form and succeed. And these groups often raise money through targeted email campaigns for voluntary contributions rather than regular annual membership dues. Many groups also sell some ancillary services to members like insurance and vacation tours. And in addition, many groups establish an agency that actually carries out the group's task which may be a research organization or a public relations office, or maybe even a lobbying office in Washington or a state capitol. And finally, almost all interest groups must attract and keep members, whether membership is defined formally or informally. And groups must persuade individuals to invest the money, time, energy, or effort required to take part in the group's activities. Members play a larger role in some groups than in others. And so in membership associations, group members actually serve on committees and engage in projects. In the case of labor unions, members pay significant dues and attend rallies or march in picket lines. In the case of political or ideological groups, members may participate in demonstrations and protests. And in another set of groups, staff organizations, like a professional staff, uh, then conducts most of the group's activities, while members are called on on only to make contributions. So among the well-known public interest groups, some like the National Organization for Women are membership groups and others like 
the Children's Defense Fund are staff organizations. So many online organized interests do not require membership beyond signing up for an online newsletter or signing an online petition. So whether they need individuals to volunteer or merely to write checks, groups need to recruit and retain members. Yet many groups find this task difficult, even when it comes to recruiting members who are, agree strongly with the group's goals. And such benefits are called collective goods, where the benefits of a group's success are broadly available and are, cannot be denied to non-members. So the term is usually associated with certain government benefits, but it can also be applied to beneficial outcomes of interest group activity. But suppose a number of private property owners live near a mosquito-infested swamp. Each owner wants the swamp clear, but if one or a few of the owners were to clear the swamp alone, their actions would benefit all of the other owners as well without any effort on the part of those other owners. And so the inactive owners would be a free rider on the efforts of the ones who cleared the swamp. So there's a disincentive for any of the owners to undertake the job alone. And since the number of concerned owners is small in this case, they might eventually be able to organize themselves to share the costs as well as to enjoy the benefits of clearing the swamp. But suppose the number of interested people is increased. Suppose the common concern is not the neighborhood swamp, but polluted air, groundwater involving thousands or even millions of residents. But national defense is the most obvious collective good whose benefits are shared by all residents, regardless of the taxes they pay or the support they provide. So as the number of involved people increases or as the size of the group increases, the free rider phenomenon becomes more of a problem. And so the group would no doubt be more influential if all concerned individuals were active members if there were new free riders. And so this collective action problem is one of the major reasons why many groups don't form. And individuals don't have much incentive to become active members of a group that's already working more or less on their behalf. So to overcome the free rider problem, groups offer members selective benefits available only to group members. And so these benefits can be informational, material, solidary, purposive, or a combination of benefits. A community association, for example, can offer its members a sense of belonging, like a solidary benefit, involvement in community decision-making, which is a purposive benefit, reduced rates on homeowners insurance, which is a material benefit, So informational benefits are the most widespread and important category of selected benefits offered to group members. And information is provided through online communication like email, conferences, training programs, and newsletters and other periodicals sent automatically to those who have paid membership dues. Material benefits include anything that can be measured monetarily, like gifts, discount purchasing, shared advertising, and like health and retirement insurance. Solidary Benefits include the friendship and networking opportunities that membership provides. So extremely important to many of the newer citizen groups is consciousness raising, including satisfaction of working toward a common goal with like-minded individuals. And one example of that can be seen in the claims of many women's organizations that active 
participation conveys to each member an enhanced sense of her own value and a stronger ability to advance individual as well as collective rights. And members of associations based on ethnicity, race, or religion also derive solidary benefits from interacting with individuals they perceive as sharing their own backgrounds, values, and perspectives. A fourth type of benefit involves the appeal of the purpose of an interest group. So an example of purpose of benefits is businesses joining trade associations to further their economic interests. And similarly, individuals join consumer, environmental, or other civic groups to pursue goals that are important to them. And many of the most successful interest groups of the past 20 years have been citizen groups or public interest groups organized largely around shared ideological goals, including government reform, civil rights, economic equality, family values, and even opposition to government itself. Digital communication is changing how interest groups encourage participation in politics and sustain collective action by citizens. Political scientist and former vice president of the Sierra Club, David Karpf, has argued that digital media and social media have created a new kind of interest group politics in America that has revolutionized political advocacy. For example, the liberal-leaning MoveOn.org and conservative-leaning Americans for Prosperity have arisen over the past two decades to play an increasingly important role in citizen participation in politics. These grassroots online activist organizations have redefined membership and fundraising practices through innovative methods for communicating with their members, measuring the opinions of their members, and moving their members into action in terms of influencing public opinion, contributing money to campaigns, and working on behalf of the organization. Traditional interest groups are expensive to organize, one reason why group membership has an upper-class bias, and they rely on professional advocates and direct mail. They are also slow to change. And by contrast, many of today's advocacy groups are relatively inexpensive to organize and quick to adapt to an ever-changing world of politics. Rather than requiring an annual membership fee to join, membership is free and defined by receiving communication from the group and working on behalf of the group. Targeted fundraising drives over local, state, or federal government legislation over a salient event like raising money for victims of like Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico or over an election, is how the organization raises funds to maintain itself. While most traditional interest groups are focused on a single issue, for instance, the Sierra Club seeks protection of the environment while AARP advocates on behalf of older Americans. Online advocacy groups are often issue generalists that have a wide umbrella of issues for which they lobby. Advocacy groups with a significant online structure are less expensive to organize because they have a streamlined staff structure with fewer staff who often work from virtual offices. In contrast, traditional interest groups must maintain offices in Washington, D.C. and other regional locations. So the modified staff structure engages in different work routines that prioritize communication with members through email, Twitter, and other digital platforms rather than mailing expensive glossy newsletters or engaging in direct lobbying of members of Congress. Today's advocacy groups employ grassroots strategies to pressure elected officials. These strategies may include the use of social media to organize rallies, generate news headlines, and promote fundraising events, letter writing campaigns, boycotts, and protests. Online advocacy groups may improve representation for citizens, counteracting the disproportionate influence of business and corporate interests in Washington. Liberal and conservative groups, as well as economic interest groups, 
have been better able to organize and affect government policy in the past decade with the help of the internet and social media. And online advocacy organizations may also differ from traditional groups in the types of benefits they offer members, like the cases of Move On and AARP. So with Move On, rather than offering members material selective incentives to join the group, uh, these online activist groups like Move On, they offer informational selective benefits to members through daily or weekly news updates and solidary benefits of volunteering or donating money on behalf of the organization. And unlike mainstream news organizations, online advocacy groups are decidedly partisan in the information they provide members. So in addition, the group offers their members purpose of benefits, that knowledge that one is contributing to a dearly held cause. And purpose of benefits may be the most important of all in maintaining the new online citizen advocacy groups. And one group that has been extremely successful in recruiting members and mobilizing them for political action is the AARP. And the organization was founded as the American Association of Retired Persons in 1958 as a result of the efforts of a retired California high school principal named Ethel Percy Andrews to find affordable health insurance for herself and the thousands of members of the National Retired Teachers Association. So for the insurer, it provided an expanded market. For Andrews, it was a way to serve the ever-growing elderly population whose problems and needs were expanding, along with their numbers and their life expectancy. Today, AARP is a large and powerful organization with 38 million members and an annual income of $900 million. So how did this large organization overcome the free rider problem and recruit so many members? So no other organization has ever more successfully provided the selective benefits necessary to overcome the free rider problem. It helps that AARP began as an organization to provide affordable health insurance for aging members rather than as an organization to influence public policy. But the fact only strengthens the argument that members need short-term individual benefits if they are to invest effort in longer-term and less concrete set of benefits. So as AARP evolved into a political interest group, its leadership added more selective benefits for individual members. It provided guidance against consumer fraud, offered low-interest credit cards, evaluated and endorsed products that were deemed valuable to members, and provided auto insurance and a discounted mail-order pharmacy. So the, leaders, the resources of AARP is so extensive that its leadership has been able to mobilize itself on issues of importance to the group. And one of its most successful methods of mobilization is a telephone tree. AARP leaders quickly mobilize thousands of members for and against proposals that affect Social Security, Medicare, and other questions of security for the aging. So a telephone tree in each state enables the state AARP chair to phone all of the AARP district directors who can then phone the presidents of the dozens of local chapters who can then call their local officers and individual members. Within 24 hours, thousands of individual AARP members can be contacting local, state, and national officials to express their opposition to proposed legislation. So interest groups and concerns about them are not new. As long as there is government, as long as government makes policies that add value or impose costs, as long as there's freedom to organize, interest groups will abound. So if government expands, so will interest groups. And there was, for example, a spurt of growth in the national government during the 1880s and 90s, largely coming from the first government efforts. Uh, economic intervention to fight large monopolies and to regulate some aspects of interstate commerce. 
And in response, a parallel spurt of growth occurred in national interest groups. Many groups were organized around specific agricultural products as well. And so this period marked the beginning of the expansion of trade unions as interest groups. And later in the 1930s, interest groups with headquarters in Washington began to grow significantly concurrent with that decade's historic and sustained expansion of the national government. And over the past half century, there's been an even greater increase both in the number of interest groups seeking to play a role in the American political process and in their ability to seek to influence that process. And interest in advocacy groups have become much more numerous, more active, and more influential in American politics, with lobby groups and super PACs playing major roles in Congress and in electoral politics. So this explosion of interest group activity has two basic origins. First, the expansion of the role of government during this period, and second, the coming of age of a new and dynamic set of political forces in the United States, forces that have relied heavily on public interest groups to advance their causes. So modern government's extensive economic and social programs have powerful politicizing effects, often sparking the organization of new groups and interests. Interest group activity is often a consequence of government. Government involvement in any area can be a powerful stimulus for political organization and action by those whose interests are affected. So, for example, during the 1970s, expanded federal regulation of the automobile, oil, gas, education, and healthcare industries compelled each of them to increase their efforts to influence the government's laws and regulations. And all those efforts, in turn, spurred the organization of other groups to counter the activities of the first. And similarly, federal social programs have sparked political organization. So the expansion in government in recent decades has stimulated interest group activity and organization. So like the federal government, the states too have expanded their scope of organization of government and have likewise witnessed a growth in the number and diversity of interest groups. But interest group activity isn't uniform across the states. One study, for example, found that large population affluent states with higher per capita income and higher government expenditures have more trade associations than other states. These large population affluent states legislate on more policy areas and thus activate the business community to lobby to protect their economic interests. And economists call this rent seeking. So the second factor accounting for the explosion of interest group activity was the emergence of a new set of forces in American politics that can be collectively called new politics movement, which began in the 1960s and 70s. So for this cohort of upper middle class professionals, the civil rights and anti-war movements were formative political experiences. They formed groups to crusade against racial discrimination and the Vietnam War, and this experience taught them the political efficacy of organized group activity to affect politics. In more recent years, these citizens have focused attention on issues such as environmental protection, social and economic inequality, women's rights, and rights for the LGBTQ community. Members of this movement founded or strengthened public interest groups such as Common Cause, the Sierra Club, the Environmental Defense Fund, and National Organization of Women. Now, such groups were able to influence the media, Congress, and even the judiciary and enjoyed a remarkable degree of success during the late 1960s and early 1970s in securing the enactment of environmental, consumer, and occupational health and safety legislation. A host of advocacy organizations also exist for the ideological right and have been equally successful. So, founded in 1964, the American Conservative Union was one of the first public interest groups to 
forum to advocate for conservative issues. Their primary concerns are liberty, personal responsibility rather than government welfare programs, traditional values, and national defense. So organizations like these, they're active in electoral campaigns as well, running ads to advance advantage uh, Republican candidates and against Democratic candidates for public office. So interest groups, they work to improve the likelihood that their policy interests will be heard and treated favorably by the government. The quest for political influence or power takes many forms. Insider strategies include access to key decision makers, lobbying and litigating cases in courts. Outsider strategies include going public and using electoral politics. These strategies do not exhaust all the possibilities, but they paint a broad picture of ways that groups use their resources in the fierce competition for power. Many groups employ a mix of insider and outsider strategies. So, for example, environmental groups like the Sierra Club lobby members of Congress and key congressional staff members participate in bureaucratic rulemaking by offering comments and suggestions to agencies on new environmental rules and bring lawsuits under various environmental acts such as the Endangered Species Act, which authorizes groups and citizens to come to court if they believe the act is being violated. While most groups win sometimes and lose sometimes when advocating for their policy goals, in general, groups that are well-organized and have resources, including citizen groups, are more effective. So let's talk about lobbying. Now, lobbying is an attempt by a group to influence the policy process through persuasion of government officials. Most Americans tend to believe that interest groups exert their influence through direct contact with members of Congress, but lobbying encompasses a broad range of activities that groups engage in with all sorts of government officials and the public as a whole. The 1946 Federal Regulation of Lobbying Act defines a lobbyist as any person who shall engage himself for pay or any consideration for the purpose of attempting to influence the passage or defeat of any legislation of the Congress of the United States. The 1995 Lobbying Disclosure Act requires all organizations employing lobbyists to register with Congress and to disclose whom they represent, whom they lobby, what they are looking for, and how much they are paid. Lobbying involves a great deal of activity on the part of someone speaking for an interest, and lobbyists attempt to influence the policy process in a variety of ways. Lobbyists first and foremost provide information to lawmakers, administrators, and committee staff about their interests and the legislation at hand. They often testify on behalf of their clients at congressional committee and agency hearings. Lobbyists talk to reporters, place ads in newspapers, and organize letter writing, phone call, and email campaigns. Many lobbying efforts occur in private meetings with lawmakers and campaign leaders and behind closed doors. They also play an important role in fundraising, helping to direct clients' contributions to certain members of Congress and presidential candidates. Traditionally, the term lobbyist referred mainly to individuals who sought to influence the passage of legislation in Congress. The First Amendment of the Constitution provides for the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. But as early as the 1870s, lobbying became the term for petitioning. And since petitioning cannot take place on the floor of the House or Senate, petitioners must confront members of Congress in the lobbies of the legislative chamber, hence the term lobbying. Sophisticated lobbyists win influence by providing information about policies to busy members of Congress. Although interest groups do not necessarily buy votes, they do buy time, expertise, and influence. Studies have found that those interest groups providing the most money to representatives are more likely to be consulted 
by that representative and asked to provide information and expertise in discussing a bill pertaining to that group's area of interest. This, in essence, gives interest groups a voice in shaping how legislation is written. And while it cannot ensure votes for laws preferred by the group, by participating in the political in the policy process, organized interests are influencing policy. So the influence of lobbyists in many instances is based on personal relationships and the behind-the-scenes services they are able to perform for lawmakers. Many of Washington's top lobbyists have close ties to important members of Congress or were themselves important political figures, thus virtually guaranteeing that their clients will have direct access to congressional leaders. Some important lobbyists have more than a business relationship to lawmakers. Quite a few, in fact, are married to prominent political figures. Through their lobbyists, interest groups also have substantial influence in setting the legislative agenda. They help to craft specific language and legislation and build coalitions and comprehensive campaigns around particular policy issues. These coalitions do not rise from the grassroots, but instead are put together by Washington lobbyists who launch comprehensive campaigns that combine simulated grassroots activity with information and campaign funding for members of Congress. So many individuals and groups clamor for the president's time and attention that only the most skilled and best connected members of the lobbying community can hope to influence presidential decisions. Typically, a president's key political advisors and fundraisers will include individuals with ties to the lobbying industry who can help their friends gain access to the White House. Lobbying the president took an odd twist in 2018 when Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, was widely criticized for accepting millions of dollars from corporations including AT&T and international drug companies for insights on the president's decision-making, although Cohen is not registered as a lobbyist. Even when an interest group is successful at getting its bill passed by Congress and signed by the president, the prospect of full and faithful implementation of the law is not guaranteed. Often a group and its allies do not pack up and go home as soon as the president turns the new law they lobbied for over to the appropriate agency. In some respects, interest group access to the executive branch is facilitated by federal law. The Administrative Procedure Act, first enacted in 1946 and frequently amended in subsequent years, requires most federal agencies to provide notice and an opportunity for comment before implementing proposed new rules and regulations. This notice and comment rulemaking is designed to allow interests an opportunity to make their views known and to participate in the implementation of federal legislation that affects them. Congress enacted the Negotiated Rulemaking Act in 1990 to encourage administrative agencies to engage in direct and open negotiations with affected interests when developing new regulations. These two pieces of legislation have played an important role in opening the bureaucratic process to interest group influence. Today, few federal agencies would consider attempting to implement a new rule without consulting affected interests, known in Washington as stakeholders. So the development of government policy is the product of the so-called Iron Triangle, which has one angle in an executive branch program, like the bureaucratic agency, another angle in a Senate or House committee or subcommittee, and a third angle in some highly stable and well-organized interest group. So in policy areas like farming and agriculture policy or energy policy, interest groups, government agencies, and congressional committees routinely work together for mutual benefit. The interest group provides campaign contributions for members of Congress, lobbies for larger budgets for the agency, and provides policy expertise to lawmakers. The agency, in turn, provides government contracts for the interest group and the constituency services for friendly members of Congress. 
The Congressional Committee or Subcommittee, meanwhile, supports the agency's budgetary requests and the programs the interest group favors. Together, the three actors that make up the angles in the triangle create a mutually supportive relationship that can last over a long period of time, especially if a committee member has considerable seniority in Congress. An interest cannot feel comfortable about its access to Congress until it has one or more of its own people with 10 or more years of a continuous service on the relevant committee or subcommittee. A number of important policy domains like the environment, tax policy, and immigration policy are controlled not by highly structured and unified iron triangles, but by broader issue networks. These networks consist of like-minded politicians, consultants, public officials, activists, and interest groups that care about the issue in question. Activists and interest groups recognized as being involved in the issue, the stakeholders, are customarily invited to testify before congressional committees or give their views to government agencies considering action in their domain. Issue networks and iron triangles may be overlapping and may also coexist. Sometimes the actions of lobbyists are outside the law. In 2005, a prominent Washington lobbyist named Jack Abramoff was indicted on numerous charges of fraud and violations of federal lobbying laws. During the investigation of his activities, it was revealed that Abramoff, along with his associate Michael Scanlon, had collected tens of millions of dollars from several American Indian tribes that operated lucrative gambling casinos. What Abramoff provided in exchange was access to key Republican members of Congress who helped his clients shut down rival casino operators. Abramoff was closely associated with several House members, including the former House Majority Leader, Tom DeLay. Millions of tribal dollars found their way into the campaign war chest of Abramoff's friends in Congress. Thus, through a well-connected lobbyist, money had effectively purchased access and influence. Abramoff and several of his associates subsequently pleaded guilty to federal bribery and fraud charges, and he was sentenced to more than five years in prison. So, because lobbyists are so influential in Washington, D.C., Congress has tried to limit their role by adopting stricter guidelines. However, the effectiveness of the new rules is unclear. For example, businesses may no longer conduct lobbying costs as a business expense. Trade associations must report to members the proportion of their dues that goes toward lobbying, and that proportion of the dues may not be reported as a business expense. The most important new regulation was the 1995 Lobbying Disclosure Act, which expanded the definition of the organization and individuals that must register to lobby. In 1996, Congress passed legislation limiting the size of gifts to its own members and banned the practice of honoraria for giving speeches, which special interests had used to supplement congressional salaries. Interest groups sometimes turn to litigation when they lack access or when they feel they have insufficient influence to change a policy. Interest groups can use the courts to affect public policy in at least three ways. By bringing suit directly on behalf of the group itself, by financing suits brought by individuals, or by filing a companion brief as an amicus curiae, which translates to friend of the court, to an existing court case. Among the best-known illustrations of using the courts for political influence is found in the history of the National Association for the Advancement of Color People, the NAACP. So, in Brown v. Board of Education, the U.S. Supreme Court held that legal segregation of the schools was unconstitutional. Later, extensive litigation accompanied the women's rights movement in the 1960s and the movement for rights of gays and lesbians in the 1990s. So, litigation involving large businesses 
is voluminous in such areas like taxation, antitrust, interstate transportation, patents, and product quality and standardization. Often a business is brought to litigation against its will by virtue of initiatives taken against it by other businesses or by government agencies. But many individual businesses bring suit themselves to influence government policy, and business groups also frequently use the courts because of the number of government programs applied to them. Major corporations and their trade associations pay tremendous amounts of money each year and fees to the most prestigious Washington law firms. Much of this money is used to keep the best and most experienced lawyers prepared to represent the corporations in court or before administrative agencies when necessary. Going public is a strategy to mobilize the widest and most favorable public opinion for an issue or societal problem and a favored strategy of citizen groups, membership groups, and online advocacy groups. Many groups consider it imperative to maintain this climate at all times. As early as the 1930s, political analysts were distinguishing between the old lobby of direct group representation before Congress and the new lobby of public relations professionals addressing the public at large as a way to ultimately reach Congress. One of the best known ways of going public is the use of institutional advertising. A casual scanning of websites, newspapers, and television ads will provide numerous examples of expensive and well-designed ads by the major oil and gas companies, automobile and steel companies, other large corporations, and trade associations. The ads attempt to show how much these organizations are doing for the country. Their purpose is to create and maintain a positive association between an organization and the community at large in the hope of drawing on these favorable feelings as needed for specific political campaigns later on. Many groups resort to going public because they lack the resources, the contacts, or the experience to use other political strategies. The sponsorship of boycotts, sit-ins, mass rallies, and marches by Martin Luther King Jr.'s Southern Christian Leadership Conference and related organizations during the 1950s and 60s is one of the most significant and successful cases of going public to create a more favorable climate of opinion by calling attention to abuses. The success of these events inspired similar efforts by women's groups. Another form of going public is grassroots mobilization, in which a lobby group mobilizes its members and their families throughout the country to call or email their elected representatives in support of the group's position. Among the most effective users of the grassroots effort in contemporary American politics is the religious right. Networks of evangelical churches have the capacity to generate hundreds of thousands of letters, phone calls, and emails to Congress and the White House. Similarly, the NRA maintains a powerful grassroots lobbying effort, spending more on mobilization of its members than on professional lobbyists. Sometimes what initially appears to be an upswelling of grassroots mobilization is not in fact a genuine grassroots campaign, but instead represents AstroTurf lobbying, a play on the name of the artificial grass used on many sports fields. So, such campaigns, often using email, have increased in frequency in recent years, yet members of Congress often continue to respond more to lobbyists than to public demonstrations of support for specific policy issues. In addition to attempting to influence members of Congress and other government officials, interest groups seek to use the electoral process to elect the right legislators in the first place and to ensure that those who are elected will owe them a debt of gratitude for their support. If we view matters in perspective, groups invest more resources in lobbying than in electoral politics. Nevertheless, financial support and campaign activism can be important tools for organized interests. By far the most common electoral strategy employed by interest groups is that of giving financial support to political parties or specific candidates running for office. But such support can easily cross the threshold into outright bribery. 
Therefore, Congress has occasionally attempted to regulate this strategy, but with limited success. The Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971 that was amended in 1974 requires that each candidate or campaign committee itemize the full name and address, occupation, and principal business of each person who contributes more than $100. These provisions create an open record of which organizations and individuals fund the campaigns of candidates for public office. The 1972 Watergate scandal was triggered by the illegal entry of a group of clandestine agents employed by the President's re-election committee into the office of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate apartment and hotel complex. An investigation quickly revealed numerous violations of campaign finance laws involving millions of dollars in unregistered cash from corporate executives to President Nixon's re-election campaign. Reaction to Watergate produced further legislation on campaign finance in 1974 and 76, but the effect was to restrict individual rather than interest group activity. A political action committee, however, can contribute $5,000 provided it contributes to at least five different federal candidates each year. Campaign finance regulations are discussed in more detail uh, from the campaign and election chapter and podcast. The laws permit corporations, unions, and other interest groups to form PACs. PACs represent interest groups in electoral politics. The option to form a PAC was made available by law in the early 1970s. Before then, it was difficult, if not downright illegal, for corporations, including unions, (coughs) to get directly involved in elections by supporting parties and candidates. The flurry of reform legislation in the 1970s attempted to reduce the influence that interest groups have over elections, but the effect has been almost the exact opposite. Electoral spending by interest groups has been increasing dramatically. Given the enormous costs of running political campaigns, most politicians are eager to receive contributions and at least willing to give a friendly hearing to the needs and interests of contributors. Concern about PACs grew through the 1980s and 90s, creating a constant drumbeat for reform of federal election laws. Proposals to abolish PACs were introduced in Congress on many occasions, with perhaps the most celebrated being the McCain-Feingold Bill, which is the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002. When originally proposed in 1996, McCain-Feingold was aimed at reducing or eliminating PACs, but in a stunning about-face when the act was adopted in 2002, it did not restrict PACs in any significant way. One consequence of this reform was the creation of new organizations to fund candidates, super PACs and 527 committees. So a PAC has a maximum contribution limit of $5,000 per candidate in each election cycle. Super PACs, on the other hand, cannot donate to candidates or parties directly, but they can spend unlimited sums of money on campaigns to influence an election in favor of candidates or parties as long as their activity is not coordinated with the candidates or parties. Because there are no limits on the amount of money super PACs may raise from corporations, unions, and interest groups, they have become more important than PACs and have had the effect of strengthening interest groups. (coughs) Financial support is not the only way that organized interest groups seek influence through electoral politics. Sometimes activism can be even more important than campaign contributions. Campaign activism on the part of conservative groups played a very important role in bringing about the Republican capture of both houses of Congress in 1994. One post-election study suggested that more than 60% of the more than 600 candidates supported by the Christian right were successful in state, local, and congressional races in 1994, especially in the South. 
In many congressional districts, Christian coalition efforts were augmented by grassroots campaigns launched by the NRA, which have been outraged by Democratic support for gun control legislation. Both groups are well organized at the local level and were able to mobilize their members across the country to participate in congressional races. Another political tactic that interest groups use is sponsorship of ballot initiatives at the state level. The initiative, available in half the state, allows proposed laws to be placed on the general election ballot and submitted directly to the voters, bypassing the state legislature and the governor. The initiative was originally promoted by late 19th century populists and progressives as a mechanism that would allow the people to govern directly, an antidote to interest group influence in the legislative process. Some studies have suggested that, ironically, many initiative campaigns today are actually sponsored by interest groups seeking to circumvent legislative opposition to their goals. In recent years, for example, initiative campaigns have been sponsored by the insurance industry, the automobile industry, trial lawyers associations, and tobacco companies. The success of business groups promoting successful tax limitation ballot measures in the 70s and 80s has led liberal activists to develop their own issue campaigns. Liberal activists established a ballot initiative strategy center to provide national coordination for these efforts, which led to successful statewide ballot measures to reduce the minimum wa- or raise the minimum wage, protect the environment in Colorado, and increase taxes for corporations and high-income wage earners in Oregon and California. Both corporate and grassroots groups have had success with ballot initiatives over the past two ge- decades. But while businesses may sponsor ballot initiatives, such measures are more likely to be rejected by voters on Election Day than initiatives sponsored by citizen groups. So the implication is that mechanisms of direct democracy, like the initiative process, favor citizen interests while lobbying favors economic interests. So I hope this interest group politicast kind of helps explain like what they do, who they are, how they form all that jazz. I hope you guys found this interesting and informative and educational, and I hope to see you on the next political cast, which we are going to be talking about Congress, what they do. It's going to be awesome. Take care, folks.